Hey there, everybody. Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 275 on the 5th of July, the day after Independence Day, where on that day, dogs everywhere are flipping out. Maybe not everybody's dog, but man, our dog does not dig the big booms. And so uh, I actually retired pretty early so I could be at the house to kind of make sure he wasn't, I don't know, like tearing something apart or trying to crash through a door or escape the noise or whatever else. Turned on all the noisemakers I had around the house so we could just drown out the concussions that were occurring outside. And we weathered the storm. And now it's the next day and it's time for another podcast. And it has been a full month since the last podcast, which was not by design, right? I was gone for three weeks, so I had a delayed podcast, came back kind of did the one for June, talked about all of the outrage machine stuff, and then crickets. Like, I just didn't come back around to it for the month of June. A number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, part of it was just very busy schedule. Part of it is I've been spending a lot of time writing this article. I talked about it in the previous podcast where I wanted to write an article about um, just, I, the simplest way to put it is my relationship to all of the Pride Month shenanigans and all of the culture war stuff uh, as that relates to being the parent of a gay child and the whole journey that that has been for my life and the life of our family for, man, a decade, really, when it comes down to it. So uh, I've been writing that article, which at this point, I, I joked last time, but it's a book. It really is becoming like that. Uh, I think I'm uh, on page 10 of single space writing. Like, it's ridiculous, right? I think much of this is just kind of cathartic in some ways for me, where I'm just putting it all on paper and trying to process it out. Uh, and so no one may read it, but at least I wrote it. I hope to post it. I, I, my, my hope and my plan is somewhere in the month of July, because um, once I get kind of the bulk of it written, then I'm like working it through and not not wordsmithing it as much as just trying to like, is that what I meant? Is that how I want to say that and everything else? Because uh, the way I kind of started off is the fact that um, in the current climate, we're both the religious right and the liberal left or the irreligious left or whatever you want to call it. Not that everybody on the left is irreligious and not everybody on the right is religious, but you know, you kind of understand that basic nomenclature and uh, both sides are equally poised to want to cancel the other side for everything. And now I'm trying to write this thing where... Uh, I kind of look and I go, uh, I have the potential to uh, frustrate both sides for different reasons. Uh, and then in that, I'm also trying to be very open and honest about my own flaws and failures uh, in dealing with having a gay son in the early years of all of that. Uh, and by the early years, I mean like literally 12, 13, 14 years of age. You know, a lot of us uh, are aware that, you know, about 17, we kind of talked about the fact that my, my son kind of publicly came out at that point. But for us, the journey went back five years before that. And so I'm just kind of walking through all of that. And so because of that, and I think because of the best way I can say it, the emotional anguish that comes with trying to um, retread that ground. Um, I just didn't have enough bandwidth between working on that and working on Sundays to be like, and I want to do a podcast too. Like it just wasn't really in the equation for me at that point. So finally 
got to July, and I'm like, okay, time to come back around to the podcast, and I hope to make up for things by actually doing something every week for the month of July, which I'm calling uh, Midsummer Musings. That's going to be the thing, right? And so it's going to be some of the stuff I've been processing through, kind of kicking around in the old noggin. There may be some of you that go, hey, yes, let's go ahead and look into Matt's brain, and others are going to be like, I have no interest to go there. That's a that's a weird space, man. So you might just kind of punt to August and be like, I'll pick you back up here on the on the flip side of uh, your uh, kind of the midsummer musings. But others might go, oh, no, I'm going to stick with this. And I think a lot of this is going to be more in the space of areas of kind of doctrine uh, or academics or something of that nature. So it's going to feel a little less like everyday missionary stuff. Though I think it's going to be related, right? Because I think there's going to be things in there where I'm always kind of thinking in terms of um, what I think is sometimes getting in the way of our missional endeavors as Christians in the American landscape, right? Because that really is what I process. And I think people are addressing those problems in different ways, some in radically different ways. So I know that I always have an angle on this that I am driving toward. I don't always think it's the angle that many in our evangelical space are necessarily taking. I think I kind of take a slightly different approach to it um, because I think I have a heart for people that have been wounded by the church. I think wounded by religion religion. Um, I, I, I think we all know of the just the sheer number of abuses that have come at the hands of religion in recent years, certainly throughout all of church history in some ways. And uh, I think my attitude is to say, hey, we got to take ownership of those things and we need to publicly call those things out and we need to be repentant for those things and we need to do business different th- differently than the way we've been doing it. That's really my heart in all of those things. And so I think I'm always processing from those angles. I think the other thing I'm always thinking about is how does our faith, and what I mean by that is kind of the objective rules or dogma of our faith, how can that generate humility? Um, and, And maybe I look at that because I think so often my concern is that I see those who tend to take it the most seriously Uh, tend to have pride more generated than humility. And so then I kind of go, well, you know a thing by its fruits. And so if the fruit is kind of pride, is there a different thing that we should be doing with all of this so that it generates humility, right? Because I think that's kind of the core of things in my thinking too. And so I'm hoping to see a kinder, gentler, more generous kind of Orthodox Christianity in play that is known for its humility as opposed to it's known for its constant statements of certainty and its constant kind of warnings about morality. And it sounds like it has its stuff together more than everybody else does when then we all know that we probably don't have our stuff more together, which is why we throw ourselves on the grace of God. And that all kind of matters to me. So anyway, I don't know if that's kind of like some weird opening forward to uh, the podcast today, but that's kind of the the stuff I've been kicking around. And so that relates to some different topics. Uh, And the first one today I want to talk about is kind of the difference between what it means to be truly biblical and what it means to be theological. And I know that maybe seems like, well, aren't those one and the same? And the answer is no, they are not one and the same at all, in my opinion. Now, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I said, you know, it's funny, there's these two books that are out right now. I haven't purchased them. I really want to. But one is called What Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew About Theologians. And then the other is What Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew About Biblical Scholars. And we tend to kind of conflate the two and think that they are dramatically related. Um, But in reality, they are not. 
All right. And uh, I've been having some other discussions with people lately about this. And so let me kind of come clean on the front end with my musings and then we'll kind of dig into the architecture of this whole thing. So uh, here's what people probably need to understand about me. And this is something I've been wrestling with for a while. And I'm like, how do we put this together? And so this podcast kind of captures it. Um, I am not in my heart. I am not in the way my brain works uh, a theologian. Which is weird because I actually have a degree in theology, right? And I have a degree in philosophy and I have a degree in biblical studies and then I have a degree in leadership. Like all that is kind of related, right? Um, but I I am not terribly interested in theology, which seems weird. It's like you're a pastor. That's what you're meant to do. And I go, right. But I'm just kind of letting you know, like if if there's flavors, that's not my flavor. I know it. I can do it. I've got a bunch of books behind me, apparently, that says I have some working knowledge of it. But I'm not a theologian in, in the way that I kind of approach things, right? Uh, I am much more of a biblical scholars type of personality, right? And here's the difference between the two. Um, as I say in the podcast a lot, when I think about the Bible, uh, it is a messy, uh, ancient, sometimes ambiguous book. And it wasn't even a book to start with. Let's be clear. Just a quick history lesson. So uh, before it was called the Bible or the scripture, it was called the scriptures, plural, because for the longest time in human history, it was not bound into a single work, right? Even when we talk about the canon, uh, the canon was a listing of scriptures, uh, 66 for the Protestants, more if you're Catholic, even more if you're Eastern Orthodox, right? So the three different major Christian sectarian groups have different size canons. Um, but fundamentally, that was a collection of scriptures, and then by the time we get around to kind of the printing press and everything else, we started to bind it into scripture, singular, the Bible, singular, uh, but for the longest time, it was approached as the scriptures, and that sort of aided in the notion that there was diversity in relationship to these different pieces of literature that have been handed down through human history, through the, the Jewish context into the Christian context, and that you allowed those different voices to speak with a certain level of independence primarily, and then a unity secondarily, all right? And I hope you're tracking with me there, right? So there was diversity primarily, and then an underlying unity secondarily, and, and you wanted to read it that way because, again, to understand what Moses was dealing with is different than to understand what Joshua was dealing with, which is different to understand what Jeremiah was dealing with, right? And the, the world had changed, the people had changed, the, the culture itself had shaped up in, in, in different ways. There had been different elements of history that had played out and was shaping questions in different ways. And so you understood that while the commonality was the God of Israel, um, you also let those authors or those different works speak their own voice, right? And then the same with the New Testament. The priorities of Paul are different than the priorities of Matthew, which is why Matthew is writing to a very Jewish audience with their questions, concerns, problems, and hangups. Paul's writing to a Gentile audience for the most part with their problems, hangups, biases, whatever else. And you let those diverse voices speak, but with the commonality for the New Testament that it's all about Christ. So biblical studies then says, let the voices speak of their own accord first. And then only after that, do you try to figure out, hey, how do these guys relate to one another? Where is their unity and where is their diversity? And it's okay that they have diversity and it's good that they have unity. And you're just kind of realizing that that's going to be the case. Theologians, though, on the other hand, go, 
we're going to err on the side that there's a commonality first and then kind of this diversity second. We want to figure out how all the different pieces of scriptures become one scripture and one Bible and teach one fundamental message and how that all has to interlock, interrelate, uh, and have no sense of kind of ambiguity between the messages of one another. That's kind of where you get into the differences. And so as we've progressed from scriptures to scripture to Bible, um, there has been an increasing drive to basically say, we need to find the harmony. And sometimes in that, that desire for the harmony, which is the job of the theologian, uh, you can override or undermine the voices of diversity because you're trying to remove what is perceived to be like, um, uh, like contradiction. You know, it's like, well, that guy said that and that guy said that and they can't really be kind of canceling each other out. So we got to find a way to harmonize them. Right. That's kind of the job of the theologian where the biblical scholar says, I don't mind the tension. I'm just taking James on his own merits. I'm taking John on his own merits. I'm taking Paul or Jude or whatever on his own merits. And again, we all know they're talking about Christ, but again, their contexts are so radically different. We don't have to make them harmonize in every single way. That's the difference between biblical studies and theology. Theology is trying to create it in, or kind of reestablish it as a monolithic voice. Biblical studies is comfortable with the diverse voice. And, and this is a simplification. I want you to understand it. It's a simplification at best, right? And so what I think is interesting, though, about this is a lot of people who talk about being biblical, what they actually mean is being theological, because if you're going to be biblical, then you're going to kind of let each of the texts stand on its own and let it create the tensions. If you want to be theological, you're going to remove the tensions and try to make it so harmonious that you, you've kind of dismantled that tension point. And in there, I don't know if that's being biblical at that point, as much as it's saying, I need to kind of rework the Bible. I need to pry it apart and then rebuild it in a different way. And, and, and therefore, I, I'm going to create something that then kind of fits this perfect like box that I wanted to appear in. And at that point, I'm not sure that's really biblical. I think that's just being theological in the name of being biblical, where biblical studies allows there again to be this kind of disjointed tension at times. Now, I'm going to pause for a second because right now, some of you, your heads may be spinning and everything else. And you're like, Matt's undermining the Bible. And I'm like, no, if anything, I actually want to revere it. I want to hold it up in the light of what it is. And I don't want to uh, go out of my way, which is why I don't have as much a theologian's heart. Uh, I don't want to go out of my way to say, you know what? Uh, I, I've got to tear it apart and rebuild it to make better sense for me. If anything, I would rather it stay in that place of tension and let it speak of its own accord, not feel like I need to basically recategorize the pieces, but let the pieces just sit there and let them create mystery and let them create wonder. And at times, man, they answer all of my questions and other times they raise more questions than it brings answers. And like, I love that process, right? It makes me so dependent on God and it keeps me from saying, oh, I figured it out. I've got the decoder ring. I've solved all the mysteries. Like, I love that notion that really when we think about the Bible, it is bigger than what my brain can hold. It is more wondrous than I can imagine. And yes, in that too, there's a lot of stuff where I go, man, I don't know what to do with that. 
And yet that's okay, because then I go to God and go, I don't know what to do with that, as opposed to, I'm going to figure out a way to pry it apart and solve the problem so I know exactly what to do with that. See, I think that's what theology does, and that's why it's different than biblical studies. And so kind of in light of that whole thing, uh, kind of, I think part of the reason then I'm not as much oriented toward theology, and this is going to be one of those things where some people are going to really disagree, and I get it, but I find theology to be a very human enterprise. Um, and so what I, maybe I'll put this a little different, uh, in the Protestant tradition, what we have said is it's scripture alone and we don't have basically a Pope. And what we mean by that is we don't have an equal authority to scripture, um, that also has jurisdiction over the church. So in the history of the Catholic Church, uh, it was the church and the scriptures that had equal authority. Part of the reasoning for that was because, because really before there was a bound kind of uh, idea of canon, uh, there was a church. So the church really was the entity by which scripture was ratified. So it wasn't scripture created a church. It was the church basically at least agreed upon scripture, right? So I'll keep it as simple as that. So the Catholic church said the church existed first, the scriptures came second. uh, And because of that, the church has binding authority as does the scriptures. And then the Protestant Reformation rolls in and says, nope, the church is corrupt. Uh, it is not an authoritative force. It's just the scriptures. Interestingly enough, I think what happened though is that we did create a, a kind of a pope for the Protestants, or maybe we created hundreds or thousands of popes. Um, but what we did is we said there's scripture and then there's doctrine or dogma or dogmatism or theology, right? And so we said, the scriptures, we debate a lot. So we need to start coming up with answers for these things we debate a lot, and that become became our doctrines. So you had the Calvinists, or you had the Arminians, or you had the Methodists, or you had the Episcopalians, or you had the Anglicans, or the Church of England, or, you know, the Assemblies of God, or you, you know, whatever thing you want to pick, right? We started to say there's scripture, and then there's also our theology that is born out of scripture. We think our theology is biblical, but none of us agree quite on what is the most biblical theology. And and why is that the case? Well, because what we're doing fundamentally is we're going from the scriptures to a very human endeavor, which is trying to figure out how we can reorganize, recategorize the the, the scriptures to answer the questions that we have. And as soon as we're jumping out of the book and we're writing now our book, based on that book, we are engaged in a very human endeavor. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is not a part of that, but what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit is not inerrantly a part of that endeavor. In other words, when John Calvin is writing his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he is not inerrantly writing a theology. He is just engaging in a human effort as a man filled with the Spirit to write stuff as best as he can figure it out. But he's doing this because he's saying, the scriptures are complicated, so I need to write two giant volumes on explaining the scriptures and categorizing it for us. That's a human endeavor. But what happens then is then in the Calvinist tradition, we go, well, that's also binding. So scripture is binding. And our theology that this dude wrote is binding. And if you violate one, it's like to violate the other. And so now we have kind of a two authority system, scripture plus 
our theology or our doctrine. And that's true to all churches, right? Whether denominations, local churches, non-denominational churches, what we tend to do is we tend to elevate our doctrinal statements almost equal to scripture because we go, well, they're based in scripture. And I go, well, right, they're based in scripture, but they're also kind of human beings trying to work through, dissect, reorganize the scriptures for uh, our consumption. And in that, there is errancy, right? There is no doctrinal statement that is in any way inerrant. It is a human enterprise by people who are filled with the Spirit. And therefore, I think in light of that, this is why I'm not interested in as much as being a theologian, because I kind of look and I go, I, I like the rawness of the scriptures. I like the fact that what God decided to give us was not like every question answered that we have, but he's like, hey man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal to you this progression of revelation of different people walking with me, wrestling with me, wrestling with life, wrestling with the human condition, wrestling with all the problems of empires that rise and fall and everything else, wrestling with the human heart. And it kind of winds its way for well over a thousand years, right? Uh, to this point of Christ and then beyond that. And more people wrestling, pondering, working through a message of God to the world, you know, and to allow it to stand on its own legs uh, as it is, I think is a beautiful thing. And I like that wrestling more than I get kind of enamored by saying, no, I got to figure out how it all fits. I got to figure out how it all is this singular voice, right? Now, in this, I'm not saying that there isn't an underlying kind of singular voice of God working in the hearts and minds of the writers of the scriptures over the course of human history to present this message. But even as we do that, we have to kind of always understand that there's two layers to it. Like when we read the law of Moses or the first five books of the Bible, that was generated to a people group at a certain time where the world and the norms and the perspectives were so radically different than ours that we have to get into their sandals to really even wrestle with what it's saying. And then from that, we extrapolate out wisdom and understanding and knowledge and a sense of God from those things. That's a really healthy endeavor. But as soon as we're extrapolating, we're realizing that that's exactly what we're we're doing. We're extrapolating from, and in that extrapolation, there needs to be humility because we know less than half of everything, especially when you're dealing with an ancient and ambiguous document at times where we're like, I don't know why you can't boil a goat in its own mother's milk. I, I don't know what was so sinister about that. I'm not sure why quail are good, but bats are bad other than bats seem like a terrible thing to eat, you know. But there was all these different legislative rules, some of which we can't even fathom, some of which we'd even find troubling today. Uh, but we go, once we get into their sandals and we understand their world, we can understand then the implication for us today in a different way, right? That's great. But in making the implication, making the jump, that's that jump from biblicism or biblical scholarship into theology or dogma. And we need to realize that in making the jump, there needs to be humility because we could be wrong or we could be misunderstanding or we could be misapplying. Now, some people will say, no, 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 Matt, you're, 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 you're creating too much room for uncertainty and that doesn't aid faith. And I actually go, no, I, I think that actually highlights faith. 
You know, I think that's that thing where, again, it causes us to have to lean into God and rely on him and, and ask him to help us know what to do with all of this stuff and, and, and to know how to do it in a way that's going to be healthy and produce flourishing for the world around us. And so this is why, again, then for me, uh, I think sometimes even as a as a communicator on Sunday mornings, for example, um, I put some people in uncomfortable spaces because they kind of want to just know what the answer is or what is that thing I must do? Just tell me the right thing. And so often I'm like, I don't know. And I want to be cautious and saying, all right, here's this this implication of the text that I'm now going to codify as a theology. And from that, I'm going to make binding as an added authority on top of the scriptures because I'm a Protestant that doesn't think there should be an authority outside of the scriptures except the scriptures, right? I don't want to be a new pope. I don't want to, to, to bring that kind of weight to bear. You know, I had somebody even say, you know, you're allowed to just tell us. And, and, and I'm like, and actually, I think what they said is you can just tell us what to do. And I'm like, once again, that's a theologian that wants to elevate their theology to scriptural proportions. Um, and that's not my heart, right? That's not my jam because I'm like, no, man, I want to take the text even more seriously, which is protect it in its original environment, protect it as it was given and not elevate my interpretive ideas to the level of scripture itself, which is what I think happens too often for us as Protestants, as pastors and theologians, we kind of elevate our, our commentary to uh, authoritative levels, you know, and I know some people say, but Peter said, everybody who, you know, preaches the word should preach as though it's the very oracles of God when they do it. And I'm like, yeah, when I'm revealing to you the, what the scriptures should bluntly say, I'm speaking the very oracles of God when I read the text, right? Now, how I extrapolate that automatically my words downgrade from what the text is, right? So every comment I make on a text is my best shot in my frailty and humanness to make sense of a thing, but I realize that it just took a massive jump down in its authority level. What it says is the authority. What I extrapolate from it is a best shot intellectually, you know? And and yet I love that space, you know? And so this is where, again, there's this difference. In fact, if anything, I have an opinion on theology that it's really just apologetics, if you're not familiar with that word apologetics, it means um, to make a defense of the faith or to explain sort of dynamics of the Christian faith and, and, and from that to kind of you know bring some kind of conviction to bear on that. And, and really, I think all theologies are born out of backgrounds, right, or systems. So Baptist theology, um, Pentecostal theology, um, you know, revivalist theology, in times theology, you name it, it comes from a mental framework outside of the text that then begins to borrow from the text to build itself, and it makes an argument for its case. That's just apologetics, right? And I think all theological systems are foundationally just apologetic systems built by people engaging the text, but with a preconceived idea or built by people who have already been spoken into or written upon, and from that reinforcing those things that they've already had kind of thrust upon their lives, or even people who then go through deconstruction and deconstruction and they reject the text and therefore they come to it and they rebuild the text in a whole new way meant to undermine the text. But all of that, again, is still just fundamentally kind of doing theology, either anti-theology or just general theology, 
But at the core of that, it's just apologetics, making a case for or against the messy thing that God gave us, which is the scriptures, right? That diverse series of voices spanning well over a thousand years, wrestling through God's revealed truths to the world in these different iterations, and then from that, leaving it to the rest of us to try to go, what do we do with all of this? And yet that, I think, is awesome. Because you don't exhaust that. That's kind of the thing I think about theology sometimes is that it's easy to kind of learn so much theology, you just put yourself in park. I'm an X. I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian, or I'm an open theist, or I'm a whatever you are, right? And you just park yourself there and uh, think that to be parked there is to be most right. And I kind of go like, I think there's a lot of things in theology that are right. I mean, I think they're pretty easy to, to show from the text that those are accurate representations, but those probably fall more into the realm of kind of a universal orthodoxy that is embraced by all sorts of different global Christians. Like I kind of go like, there's a reason that the early councils tended to agree on a handful of things and kept it relatively short because they said, that's really what matters for Christianity. Everything else is kind of up for debate. And then over the course of time, uh, you know, we continue to tinker and refine and build new ideas in and come up with new ideas and kind of expand on thoughts or whatever else. And kind of the, the, the whole thing has grown. The enterprise of theology has grown, um, and has grown as a wild tree, right? Like, honestly, it's gone from the root of Christ and the root of a very simple Christianity to a vast Oak with limbs going in every different direction. And I look at that whole tree and go, man, I love that tree. I'm not out on that limb. I'm not out on that limb. Those leaves, I don't know about that. Those leaves over there, don't know about that. But you know what? It's still all coming and flowing out of this singular trunk, which is Christ, and this singular kind of source, uh, which is the scriptures, right? Like this whole tree is grown out of the scriptures. But you always want to remember the tree isn't the scriptures, and the scripture isn't automatically your little kind of branch of the tree. Um, there's a difference. So the tree is all the theologies that we ponder, but the root is still Christ and the scriptures that we wrestle with and the Christ that we wrestle with as it relates to the scriptures. And we ask him to wrestle with us as we ponder the scriptures. And that's the stuff that excites me. So in my musings for the day, um, I, I, I kind of go, hey, this is why I sometimes frustrate some of you, right? So maybe this even helps too. We're People go like, well, what's the answer? Well, I'll give you the four, you know, in Christian history. Or what's the answer here? I'll give you the six in Christian history. Well, Matt, what's your opinion? I'll give you my opinion. But here's what I know about my opinion. It's just that. It's an opinion. And there's three others out there that are just as good or maybe even better than my opinion. But an opinion on one thing is related to maybe something that's a conviction more for me on another thing. And because of that, you know, hey, it's it's kind of like always the pieces are always kind of swaying a little bit, you know. But that's growth. You know, and I, I think even in my own world, I'm like, you know, kind of there isn't like, well, what's Matt's belief? It's like, what are Matt's beliefs? And some of those beliefs kind of migrate too, right? In life, because that's what growth is all about. You know, like I keep joking on the podcast, I'm probably more Calvinish than Calvinistic. Um, I say that because, again, I think modern American popularized Calvinists today um, are not the Calvinists of 100 years ago. 
or 200 years ago, uh, or 300 years ago. Certainly not the Calvinists of Germany, certainly not the Calvinists of the Netherlands, you know? So in some ways, it's like, I would be a Calvinist in some German circles, but here, when you think about, like, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, you know, kind of pick the cast of characters, they would probably say, like, ah, he's Calvin-ish, right? But this is, again, case in point. Our theologies are human endeavors to do the best we can with a very messy text, that if it was so easy to discern, every Christian everywhere would agree, right? We go, well, of course they don't all agree because they're wrong. There's my point, right? <laughs> like, they're just wrong. Now, I think there are things out there that are wrong in Christianity. I really do. Um, where I tend to think they're wrong, though, is more in if the fruit looks not like the fruit of the Spirit, then I, I'm not sure what the root is, right? Like there, there could be something broken there. And, and that's where I go back to my statement, even on get, kind of being biblical. I hear people use the term biblical and they said they're more biblical than maybe other groups or other churches or whatever else, but their fruit is so proud and so arrogant and so kind of undermining everybody else that doesn't believe like them. I'm like, I'm not sure that's the fruit of the spirit, you know? And therefore, again, you might have um, what you perceive to be accuracy and your theology because you've worked it through so much that there's no gaps, but it's at the cost of really the humility that comes from wrestling with the scriptures that leave you wondering and always leave you guessing a bit too, right? But that's the beauty of the scriptures, I think, that they leave you guessing a little bit. They leave you wondering. They leave you kind of in the murkiness at times and not all the time. I think there's a ton of stuff that's clear in the scriptures. I really do. But there is honestly stuff where you go, I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to give you a simple example of this. In James chapter one, it says, God cannot be tempted. God doesn't tempt anybody. God cannot be tempted. But we go, but Jesus was God. And we see that Jesus was tempted in the desert by the devil. And you go, if God can't be tempted, but Jesus is God and Jesus is tempted, then what do I do with this? And then people go through all these weird shenanigans to try to figure out how to reconcile those things. It's just better to say, you know what? I don't know. Like they're, they're both there. They're both in tension. I would love to be able to give you a nice, clean, tidy answer about how Jesus can be God and be tempted, but God can't be tempted, but I can't give a nice, tidy answer. I can give one that's an apologetic again. It's, I'm going to give you a defense for the idea, but it then takes away the tension of the text or the fact that we would say God is all knowing. But in Mark chapter 13, Jesus actually says he doesn't know the day of his own return. So if Jesus is God and God is all knowing, but Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return, then how is Jesus God? Well, Jesus is God. That whole tension is just that. It's a tension. And I would rather leave the tension, acknowledge the tension. And in that, my humility that I know less than half of everything than to try to solve that tension. Because then people get into, well... In his humanness, Jesus was limited in this way, but not limited in that way. And he was self-regulating his own knowledge. And there's this whole thing. And it's like, we're jumping through hoops as opposed to just let the text be the text. Just let it create the discomfort. And that's okay. Because that's the way God wanted you to have it, right? God wanted you to go like, scratch my head. I don't know. Therefore, I move in faith. That's a really okay place to be. I think sometimes we feel, especially in the modern world, that we have to have an answer for everything because we're trying to appease our critics, I kind of look and I go, I would rather appease our critics by having such a profound, genuine, genuine grace-based faith and such a profound display of the, the, the fruit of the spirit and such a profound display of love of neighbor and enemy and world around me. Like I would rather displace all of the critics with my behavior 
than to displace them with an academic idea that, frankly, I kind of know, like, I'm trying to make these pieces fit and they don't quite fit, but I don't know what to do, but I don't want to sound dumb and I don't want to sound like I'm gullible, so I'm going to come up with an answer that really isn't that intellectually satisfying, but hopefully I can slide it past them in the end. People are smart. They can go like, that doesn't make sense anymore, man. Like, that just doesn't, that doesn't jive. It doesn't kind of, you know, square your circle, so to speak. And so all the more then I go, let's just be honest about the beauty of the diversity of the voices of the text. Let's use theology as a helpful tool, but let's not elevate it to an authoritative doctrine equal to scripture because I'm pretty sure when we get there in the end and we talk to Jesus, he's going to say to all of us, you all were cute. You all were adorable. I love you. That's why I died for you. But again, you were so busy dividing. You were so busy fighting. You were so busy calling out each other's heresies. You missed the fact that you were all kind of heretics at some point. You're all right at some point. And really, in the end, it was less about all those things and more about, hey, did you live like me? Did you love like me? Did you act like me? Did you care about the things I cared about? Did you make the investments I really cared about in this world? Did you advance the kingdom? Or did you just advance your theologies? Because there's a difference there to me. And so, hopefully in the end, I haven't chased you off. Hopefully, I mean, there's going to be some, I'm sure, that listen and go, oh my goodness, this guy is just all over the map. And I go, I don't think I'm all over the map. Um, I, I, I think what it, again, comes down to is... In my estimation, I don't want to say I have a higher view of the scriptures. That's not quite what I mean by this. But I'm much more comfortable letting the scriptures truly be supreme and not pretending that my camped on theology or theologies are are so biblical it's like the Bible. Maybe that's a good way to sum it up, right? Because I think that's what happens. Our theology is so biblical, it's equal to the Bible. And I go, no, it's not. It's a human endeavor guided by people filled with the Spirit, uh, at least I think for the most part, sometimes maybe not, but guided by people who are filled with the Spirit, but also people who are written on in a thousand other ways and people who have all kinds of added um, incentive to to formulate in a direction, you know, like that's just going to be true as well. If you're in an Episcopal environment, you're going to be sort of conditioned to formulate in a certain direction. If you're Calvinistic, you're going to be conditioned to formulate in a certain direction. And part of that is because you're attracted to that direction. Part of that is because that's what feeds your soul. I think that's the other thing. Um, I'm a big fan of the fact that God has like a Baskin Robbins of his church, right? There's all kinds of flavors in there. And instead of saying, well, that chocolate's bad and strawberry's bad and the only good is vanilla or Rocky Road or whatever else, he's like, you're missing the point. All the flavors are, are, are differently good, uh, but they're not good for everybody, right? Some people would say, I, I don't like Rocky Road, but I really, really like vanilla. And he's like, great, go to Vanilla Church. Don't go to Rocky Road Church, right? But others are like, Rocky Road Church is what is my jam, man. And he's like, great, go to Rocky Road Church. Go to Rocky Road Theology. Don't go to, you know, I don't know, like Orange Sherbert Theology. Like that's not your theology, man, but that doesn't fill your soul. In fact, there are some theologies for me that just absolutely deplete me, like wear me out. Like I go like, that does not refresh me. That does not encourage me. Um, you know, I'm not even saying necessarily because I think they're wrong. I just go, that's so verbose. It's so predictable, whatever it is. Or I go like, puts me out, man. Just puts me out. Uh, where there's others where I go, wow, that is so beautiful. That is so 
unanticipated in there. That is, that expands my understanding of Christ in ways I never thought about before. Um, so that's going to be true too. And I kind of okay with that space. I'm okay with the fact that the church is a Baskin Robbins and in there there's problems and there's beauty and there's air and there's truth and nobody's mastered it. Therefore, nobody's cornered the market on it. Therefore, all of us are radically dependent on the grace and mercy of Christ to see us through to the end. That's my musing for today. Now, for some of you, man, that's burden. I get it. You take comfort in concrete. You take comfort in certainty. Um, and I go, I think that's one of the flavors too. The key is to not let our concrete certainty get elevated to biblical authority or equal to scripture because it's not, right? It's not. It's us doing our best to understand this beautiful, complicated, mysterious, revelatory, you know, codified, like, meta-narrative that has been spanning generations and all the way to us today, still working it through, still figuring it out. Even after 2,000 years of, of having been kind of closed up, we're still wrestling with this thing. And yet the wrestling is cool. And so I hope you like to wrestle because I think that is what we're all meant to do. And I think the more we're wrestling, the more we're, we're humbled I think in that, the more we're going to be effective everyday missionaries.